Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Just just going back then um, to, to your first operational squadron, your first fighter squadron, um, you, you've talked about the fact you get there and you have more weapons, more sensors, it becomes you know more, more complex. Um, where does having a dual role um, come into play uh, in terms of having maybe an air-to-air mission and an air-to-ground? It's, it's a, I mean, it, it's all about training. You know, it's phase-based training. So, you know, some months we do air-to-air uh, exclusively. The way we would always do it is we'd build up to it. So we'd have like a BFM phase, and then we'd do some intercepts, then we'd do uh, ACT, DCA, where we do defensive counter-air, and we practice that. And then once that phase was done, we put the tanks on the aircraft and then roll to the air-to-ground phase. And at the end of the air-to-ground phase, you do the, you know, the opposed SAT where you're actually doing both, you know, where you have OCA and, and escort. So it's just, you know, it's like anything else. You break it up piece by piece, and you, you practice that piece, and you study that piece. And then, you know, six months later, it just starts all over, and we do the next thing. Um, do it again, you know, it's, it's uh, versus an air to air squadron, which that's all they do all the time, you know, like an A-10 squadron, that's it, you know, you, you really don't have to worry about. Now, I think they do, I mean, I'm sure they do some level of BFM phase, but um, it's not to the extent that, you know, we have to do where it's uh, no kidding, clean off the jets and, and do them, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just something you got to piece by piece until you put it all together for, you know, the final act. Do, do you... Um... It's a bit of an odd question, maybe, but but in your view, then, do you end up being any good at anything at any point? It all plays together. You know, it's not it's not in a vacuum. You know, it's not like you're asking somebody to play, you know, offense and defense in the NFL. You know, it's it's you know your weapon systems, you know your capabilities of the aircraft, you study them. You know, you get the good foundation, and then you know once we get to that phase, it's just a reminder of of kind of of what what we're doing and you have you know subject matter experts in the squadron that you know that are more focused on a certain mission so that when we get to that point they can come back and bring back the lessons learned like hey remember this hey remember this i mean the re- the reason we build up to it is so that we're you know it's it's not just hey we're going to do a you know a 4vx tomorrow no we're going to do a little bit of this a little bit of this and then we're going to get to this so that you know when we're you know, at the end of a phase, we're just as good as anybody else, it's, which, I mean, other airframes would argue, no way. But, I mean, the Viper is a very capable aircraft. It's a very robust, I mean, that's why other countries love it so much, because it, it can do just about anything you ask of it. One of the things that seems um, maybe 
self-evident in what you do, in particular you, because you you have an airline, you know, a pilot job, you have a military job, you're a, you can be a, a police job, EMT, you're an instructor in martial arts, is that you must have a really good memory. Um, and you were talking about being going into the vault and reading up all the books and understanding the systems and the weapons and the tactics. How important is recall? How important is memory um, in being successful in your job? Yeah, I mean, you you have to. There, there's... You have to be able to, I mean, it takes, I'm not going to say I, you know, if I go six months, like if I hopped into an F-18 now, I would remember everything. You know, in fact, it was funny. I did that DCS video and it was probably two years, a year after I'd gotten out of the Hornet, two years-ish. And I was sitting there going, well, it looks familiar, but I don't necessarily remember. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's currency. You know, if you do, if you do something enough, uh, you know, you lay that foundation and you have the currency, then you can take a little bit of a break and come back and then, you know, a little bit of a jog and you go, oh, yeah, okay, this is, I remember this now. Versus, you know, if you take two years off, yeah, it takes a while to, to get back into the swing of things. And the real problem I've had, and I think a lot of people have, is kind of a crossover where you, you can't, you remember something, but you can't remember what airplane it goes to. You're like, was this a Navy thing, Air Force thing? You know, and, and sometimes, you know, if, especially if it's been a while, you start, it's like, you know, having somebody whose first language was, you know, a foreign language, and then they try to speak English, and they're like, well, you know, they start reverting back to their original tongue because you know, it just takes a little bit to, to remember what you're there for and what you're doing. That was going to be another one of my questions, which was unlearning habits. And, um, you know, my, my very limited knowledge of the Navy, as an example, is that, you know, when you're coming into land, are you using throttle to control alpha or, or rate of descent? I can't remember which one it is, but the Air Force does it the other way around, right? So, the Air Force AOA is actually, so the AOA indexers are backwards. And without looking at it, I don't remember which one's which, but... Um, which I'm sure you'll have viewers are like yelling at the screen. No, it's, you know, it's down, but that is the, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. And for example, I, I didn't really have the foundation, uh, when I went to 204. So, you know, most exchange pilots, when they go, when they go from air force to Navy, they go through, uh, the, the rag, which is Oceana 106 or at Lemoore, and they get, uh, you know, cat one, two or three, uh, transition course it's just like a tx1 two or three in the air force where they get the foundation so they get a here's a check ride here's some air to air here's some air to ground here's all the stuff you need my squadron sent me to do what's called a cat other which is kind of like a senior officer's course i got uh 10 hours and a check ride and then they sent me back home to go do a hurvac and the first thing they did where they're like we were hurvacked in fort worth and they go hey uh all right, we're hervacked, and you know, in the Air Force, you're hervacked. You just, you know, hey, we're gonna hang out until the storm passes. They're like, no, we're gonna go fly, do some sorties and stuff, and you're gonna go fly with, with CAG and DCAG, who are O sixes, and go do intercepts. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know how to turn this radar on. Like, I have no, like I, I don't know any of this stuff. And the Hornet is just close enough to the Viper that it makes no sense whatsoever. Because, you know, the Demas makes the seam, you know, like all the switches are just like, you're like, okay, I think that, but no, that doesn't do anything. So I, I was like, no, I, I can't do that. So they had one of the more senior instructors who had been in the, in the RAG, he had been a RAG IP, they had him go fly with me and just do formation. So it's like, okay, here's what this means. Here's what this means. And the first time he, he pumped his nose, you know, I was like in, in what the Air Force would call route, but parade. 
So he pumps the nose, and I'm like, okay, cool. Tactical. Line of breast, one mile. He's like, why are you way over there? What are you doing? I'm like, dude, you pumped me out to tactical. He's like, that's a rejoin signal. I'm like, come on. It's 180 degrees out. How is this? Oh, God. So, you know, we went out, and by the end of the day, I could kind of figure it out. But, you know, it's one of those things where you try your hardest to speak the language, but then you're like, am I remembering an Air Force thing or a Navy thing? And then I went back to the Air Force, and now I'm like, shit, I don't know which one's which. I like, no idea. You know, now I have Air Force guys saying, why are you singing Navy stuff? I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying. I don't know. You know, like... I wrote a safety report. I, I'll never forget this. I was the safety officer, and I wrote a safety thing, uh, and they, we would read them in the ready room during drill weekends. And the, somebody's reading it, and they're like, "Yep, uh, you know, came up initial, and on pitch out, there was a conflict." And everyone immediately knew it was me, but I didn't remember writing it. So I'm like, "Damn, who wrote that?" You know, and everybody's looking at me like, "You wrote it." I'm like, "What do you mean <laughs> I wrote it? How do you know? You can't tell. It's anonymous." They're like, "Pitch out." I'm like, "Yeah, pitch out. You land." They're like. That's an Air Force thing. We don't do that here. I'm like, son of a bitch. That is me. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Do, do, you, um, do, you, do you have to pay a, any particular attention then to maintaining your currency in the 737 and in the T-38? Are there any things? I mean, you know, obviously you're joking about it now, but are there things, are there yeah. things that you really have to pay attention to? The biggest thing uh, that was a problem at first, and I've just kind of gotten used to it and built my crutches around, is flaring and landing because the T-38 comes in over the overrun at 10 feet, crosses the threshold at 3 feet, and it's very fast and very low. It's a drug-in approach. 737, if you do that, uh, it will scare a lot of people. Uh, you, you do not want to do that. It's very frowned upon. And if you reverse that and flare at 50 feet, or 30 feet in the T-38, you're gonna drive a, a landing gear through the wing. So getting the sight picture, I always, my, my standard brief to my captains when I'm like, when it's my leg, first time it's been a while, I'm like, look, I've been doing military stuff, just watch me. You know, if you see me get a little drug in, which, you know, it's, it's different in the airlines because it is more scripted. You know, you're flying, you know, even if it's a VMC day, you're backed up with the ILS, you've got the flight director, you're flying that down, and then the thing starts talking to you and it says 50, 40, 30, and you know, you know, okay, I'm a flaps 30, I hear 30, I want to ring the throttles to idle, start to flare, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot more, you can, you can do it based off of what, since you don't necessarily need the sight picture as much as T38, which is 100%. You're outside, you're doing it. Don't get the wing rock because that's bad, you know, and um, don't don't get too slow. And, you know, it's got its own nuances as well. So, yeah, going back and forth between the airplanes. But as far as the flying part, really take off and landing are the only differences because the 737 is 69% autopilot. I mean, that's just the way it is. And now it's just remembering what the FMC does, which... You know, that's pretty, I mean, it's like an old computer program that you just remember. Um, the T-38, um, it's muscle memory. It's 100% muscle memory. So once you get the cross-check back and you're like, yep, I know where everything is, I trim it up. You know, it's a, it's a, the T-38, is, the reason it has lasted 60 years is because it's a good flying airplane. You know, it's a very, you know, it'll kill you, but it'll also it's also a very good airplane to go out and fly and it's a lot of fun to fly i mean it's a it's a little hot rod it's so much 
it, it's so easy because you just get in, you crank it up, and you go. There's not a lot of stuff to set up and all that stuff. You talked about uh, going from the F-16 to the F-18. The F-18 will give you everything that you, you asked for, but then, as you said, you, you're sort of out of options. And having established that the 238, you need to manage your energy well and that airplane to fly it well. Um, was that a good um, sort of um, introduction or, or reintroduction back to the T-38 then for you? Um, the, it's different. The T-38, um, the F-18 is kind of like a big T-38, you know, and I've heard people say that about the Eagle. You know, the basic flying is, is very similar. Um, the management of energy for the T-38 is, it won't give you the nose authority, you know, it'll just buff it out and, and that's the end of it. The Hornet, on the other hand, can put you in some very weird situations because, you know, it'll it'll go upside down, it'll be high alpha and you're just like, wow, this thing's got no more. They've made, you know, with the updates to the software of the Hornet, they've made it, I mean, I'm not gonna say spin proof, but they made it damn near it, you know, it's. They've, they've done some upgrades to the uh, flight control software to the point that it's very hard to depart the aircraft. Um, the T-38, you know, they, they say it's, it's, it's hard to spin, but I don't trust it, you know. So I'm, I'm still, you know, because it's so underpowered and because it doesn't have necessarily protections, I, I still find myself being a little nervous being over the top with it because it just, it's such a huge radius, you know. It's so much, it just takes so much room to do everything because there's no wing out there. I mean, there's no leading edge devices. There's there's nothing. So, I mean, it's just the wing will give you what it gives you. And then, you know, it'll tell you, hey, I'm about to stop giving you what, what you think you need. And then nothing, you know, it's just, okay, we're done. So, but uh, does it make you better? Um, it depends. You know, if, if for a student going to fly BFM, I don't think it really does a whole lot for a student like a, like I remember in IFF, my biggest frustration going from IFF to the F-16 is they, you know, they, they hammer all these things. And I had a very particular instructor that was very, very much like the T-38 was about to go to combat. And then you go to the F-16, you're like, why did I learn all this? The F-16 will do this and like, you can't, no, this is not the, the, the F-16 is so much better at it and and you know all the fundamentals and the air speeds and all the stuff you learn don't don't apply when you get to a real fighter it's based off a century series fighter which you know we haven't really needed in in, in many years but um it, it's definitely a stick and rudder you know it definitely makes you a good stick and rudder it makes you a great instrument pilot i mean no single pilot ifr with steam gauges that may or may not have started tumbling because they're 60 years old is definitely um, you'll suck up a seat cushion, yeah, fairly easily, especially if it's bad. <laughs> you went to combat, uh, you went to Iraq um, mm -hmm. in the F-16. Yep. What are your sort of, you know, what were the highlights of that for you? Uh, you know, I did one tour. You know, I'm not like the guys that have done multiple, you know, with Syria and, and different theaters and all that stuff. Um, it's one of those things when I was doing it, I thought, you know, I was like, God, I just want to go home. But then you look back and you're like, damn, I'd do that again. That was, that was fun. I mean, it, it was a different, um, it's different kind of flying. So, you know, you, you, you train for, you know, Hey, we're going to go first strike into bad guy land. We're going to dodge Sam's. We're going to have all this stuff. And then you get to what we're doing now, you know, the low intensity stuff. And it's just different. You know, it's, it's long sorties, it's flying at night. You know, I remember the first time I took off at night, 
they they told me they're like you're I, I was my first non-graded ride was a was a combat sortie and you know they told me they're like well we're not going to make you a, a night guy because it's dangerous you know we want you to get used to it and stuff well guess what when you take off as a day guy it's nighttime and i took off i remember taking off and you go from runways to just pitch black i mean absolutely nothing and the f-16 is a very high likelihood of spatial disorientation because there's just nothing there's no canopy bow there's nothing and i was completely spatial deed like i'm just like am i upside down am i right side up you know i'm just taking off going wow this is this is nuts and then on that sortie you know kind of trial by fire we were doing uh we're flying with the big tars pod so the big canoe on the on the, the bottom and we were doing a route around the country and we come back and the runway so the weather was great except the wind had picked up and it kind of blacked out or it was a uh, what do they call it sand out when the, when the sand comes in and, and basically lowers visibility to zero there was no tanker available and the only divert was al-assad and which is you know pretty far away and they don't you know they don't have the support they don't have the f-16 maintenance and all that stuff and um the flight lead was like all right dude you're a big boy what do you want to do you know i'm gonna i'm gonna land this thing and i was like ooh. Okay, so you know you're talking to the soft, and it's like, well, you can divert, but you're going to be men fuel when you get there. And you know, th this was the time where you know this was 2009. You jumped out, uh, they were going to chop your head off. There was no question about it. They were going to chop your head off. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll try it. You know, we'll see what happens. So I put the steer point diamond on the end of the runway, put the flight path marker on the steer point diamond, created my own little ILS, and landed. You know, I was like, well, I guess I'm on a runway, and completely, you know, I was like. It's the stupidest thing I've ever done, but then again, you know, this is the the rules are different now. But uh, in hindsight, you know, I mean, as a as a lieutenant without any experience, it was probably not the smartest thing to do. But you know, I mean, we talked it over, and the options weren't that great, so you know, it worked out. But it was it never really, and that was also it's like all this happens at once, but it never really sets in when you're in theater that it's real until you get to the brief and you've got you know i had a very experienced flight lead i mean he had you know done quite a bit previous to this uh he'd been like in the opening days of desert storm or uh, uh, iraqi freedom and all that stuff it didn't set in until he's given me the csar brief so the combat search and rescue brief and he's like okay if you jump out i will set up a perimeter around you an orbit around you and I will set up a one mile perimeter. If anybody comes within one mile, I'm strafing them. You know, I'm gonna drop every bomb on this aircraft, I'm gonna strafe them, and I expect you to do the same until friendly forces come come out. And then once I'm out, and if there's nobody to, to uh, you know, go to your, use your survival techniques and your evasion techniques, and if it comes down to it, you know, shoot to the last bullet because don't get taken alive. And it's like, holy shit, this is real. You know, this is, this is not just, you know, the, the stuff that we kind of gloss over in training where it's like, yeah, okay, I get it, you know, whatever. This is, it, you know, these, these people are not playing around. This is not, you know, because we, you know, you'd, you'd seen, uh, we'd, you know, you'd just seen on the news the reporters that had gotten beheaded and, you know, what happened to, you know, the, the uh, I think it was a reporter and somebody else, like a student or something that had gotten captured or something. And that was all like right, you know, at the forefront and, you know, it's, it made it very, very real. A lot of uh, people that, that I've spoken to have talked about going into combat and, and sort of saying the fighter pilot's prey. You know, please don't, yeah. don't yeah, let me fuck I, this I up. Don't, I don't care if I die. Please don't let me fuck up. Yeah. yeah. 
did you did you feel a burning desire to prove yourself? Was this a, an opportunity for you to say, "I've spent you know these years training to do something, and now I'm going to show everyone that I can do it"? No, it was. I mean, deploying to me, uh, as my mentor had said, was you know it's just paying back all the training they had put into me. You know, so they 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 put all this training into me. This is you know the rent's coming due. I need to go do the mission, but. Um, I knew when I was in the B course, I found out, you know, so I was, I was in F-16 school. I found out that, um, so I started the B course in 2007. I graduated in June of 2008 and deployed in January of 2009. So around that time, I knew as soon as I got out of the B course, I would do MQT and I was going to war. So everything leading up to that was based on that deployment. So it was kind of a, you know, I'm working towards not to prove myself, but I just, you know, I don't want to let anybody down. You know, I don't want to be the limiting factor that, you know, either screws up and kills friendlies. Um, you know, it's like a friendly fire thing, drops without clearance, kills innocent civilians. I don't want to be that guy. So everything leading up to that was trying to make sure that I was ready, you know, for whatever they had to, you know, whatever they called upon me to do. You mentioned Spatial D, and I'd imagine quite a few of the people that watch this, listen to this, have, have never experienced that before, um, and will be wondering how you can be spatially disorientated if you've got a HUD, you can look down and see a sort of a, a round steam gauge instrument that shows you your, your horizon. Can you explain how, how it works, how it manifests itself? Well, so the steam gauges in the F-16 are very dim. Uh, you know, when you when you look down, I mean, they say transition to the round dials, but the, the jets I flew, um, older jets, so the, the ground, sky, sky pointers and all that stuff are all very faded. In fact, we lost an airplane like that because he, you know, he was, out, he was on NVGs, he goes out, uh, does an outmaneuver, he rolls, and what happens is your, the, your inner ear is basically telling you your, your body's doing one thing, but you're really not. So you get this kind of tumbling sensation or the sensation that you're not upright or it's opposite what you think is happening. So now you start to go, okay, well, wait, the HUD's telling me this, the, my, my brain, my body, and it's very hard as a human being to ignore your body. I mean, that's when your body's telling you something, you know, that's what you trust. So you start to feel like you're upside down when you're really right side up and you've got the leans or whatever. And what happened to this pilot, he was going out, he tried to recover off his round dials and he ended up just in the spiral because he just couldn't, he, he, he could not make right side up and uh, he couldn't, you know, he could barely see it. And he ended up ejecting, like, I mean, talking milliseconds before he was outside the envelope at a very high rate of speed. And, you know, he thankfully survived. Um, but, I mean, that's just, I mean, what happened to me is I, you know, I took off. And so you get that pitching up sensation. So your brain, your, your, um, your mind is telling you, that you know you're 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 pitched back, but you're really not, you know, and you've got nothing to look at to try to to cross check that. So you, now you're going, okay, am I? I'm I'm straight up, and so you kind of roll a little bit, and now your your brain tells you, okay, I'm completely upside down, and then you have to force yourself to look at the HUD and look at the sky pointers and go, no, sky pointers point to the sky. We're gonna recognize, confirm, recover. We practice it, but it's a very hard thing to to replicate because you know it requires you to. You know, it requires you to trust your instruments and not trust your body. Hmm. And sky pointers are what the ticks on the end of the uh, yeah. the pitch ladder. Uh, the, the F eighteen and the F sixteen are different. Was, uh, I forget which one. One of them actually curves to point to the sky, and one of them just has the the 
the little brackets that point to the sky. I don't remember which one's which. So, so you you already told us uh, how you got to the point where, you know, you found out there was a there was an opportunity to move across the Navy Reserve. Can you tell us about that that uh, that mission then? Um, you know, the adversary program in the Navy. Yeah, we were so we were VFA. The Navy's got VFC. Uh, which is a composite, you know, usually they have like F5s that only do radar, and then they got VFC-12, which are F-18s that only do radar. We were VFA, which is a strike fighter squadron, so we were actually a strategic reserve, so we had to, that's part of the reason why I couldn't stay, is because we had to have the ability to deploy, even though, you know, the aliens would have had to have been attacking for us to be using A-model Hornets to go fight anybody. But, um, our mission, we, you know, at, at home, we did a lot of close air support, Kind of like what you're talking about with the contract red air. We would do close air support training with the JTAC. So we'd go up to the ranges, the JTACs would come out, we'd drop or simulate drop or anything like that. And then we would go to um, Fallon or Key West on a debt, a detachment, or North Island, and we would support uh, the SBARPs. Uh, so that's where the uh, you know, the Navy sends their fighters out to go do large force exercises and stuff like that, and we would go out and you know, be the bad guys with our camo painted jets and, um, you know, write down lessons learned and give them to them and, and help them out. So we supported uh, Top Gun, which is not called, hasn't been called Top Gun. It used to be, uh, uh, now it's Nazi. You don't want to call them that because they get mad at you. But uh, they, they prefer Nautic, but it spells Nazi. So, uh <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it used to be NSOC, then it was Nazi. Uh, I think that's what it is now, but we'd go support those guys. And then we'd also, uh, I was one of the first uh, debt OICs to support the F-35. So uh, when the F-35C was at Eglin, when they were first standing up, we would meet them out in the airspace and do red air for those guys. And we'd also, we had to be trained as BFM instructors um, to teach uh, both the prowler and the growler is typically who we'd go out and teach. You teach uh, prowler guys. Yeah, yeah. That, that they have a dissimilar phase, so they would come down and debt New Orleans, and we would uh, give them some dissimilar BFM. And same thing with the growler. Uh, although we were able to teach other hornets, we specifically did growlers and prowlers. I don't. They never. When I was there, we never did anything with with like rag students or anything like that of like C models or E models or anything like that. So, so, so notwithstanding, you know, sort of administrative differences, is there any real difference between the Navy Adversary and the Air Force Aggressive Programs? Uh, you know, I've, I've never done like the MIG-1 program at Nellis, um, you know, so I don't, I can't, you know, intelligently speak to that. The, um, it's, it's a little bit different in that, you know, the, Na the Navy likes to travel. Everything is on a detachment somewhere doing something for some reason. The Air Force is more, you know, we're based here, we do this. There's not as much de deading going on. So, like, the, for us, T-38s, when we were at Tyndall, we were at Tyndall. We'd go to Savannah and do exercises and stuff. But for the most part, we were at Tyndall. And same thing with Eglin. For the Navy, you know, we, we would go out and do Fallon debts. We would go out to Lemoore. We'd go out to, to Key West. And each time we, each place we would go, maybe had a slightly different mission. But at the end of the day, I think the Air Force in general, you know, when, when they, depending, it's hard, to, it's hard to speak in general terms, but depending on the mission, you know, it's more of a, here's what we need, 
you know, go out and execute. Sometimes they give you exactly what they want, and sometimes they just say, hey, go for it. Versus the Navy, which can be more of a, these are the objectives we have. It is your job as the adversary to uh, test those objectives. So you, you come up with your own ways to do it based on your training and experience because you know you're professional adversaries and, and that's your job so uh, that's more I think the MIG program like MIG-1 at Nellis I think they do more of that so I think you know VFA 204 VFC 12 is more equivalent to what Nellis the Gomers would have versus what I'm doing now which we're the second flying training squadron so it's a red air mission but it's not necessarily an adversary program like what you'd find at Nellis or something like that. I mean, it's not as robust. It's not now. We have had MIG ones from Nellis come into the program, and they have done a, a phenomenal job of taking those tactics and bringing them to us, so that the upgrade programs are very similar. But it's not. It's not the same. You know, it's it's not to the same extent as you know what you'd find there. So, how long did it take you to become um, qualified then as a, as a Red Air or Diversary Air pilot? Uh, well, see, that was part of my issue at 204 is that, you know, when my dad passed away, I'd only been there a year and that really stunted a lot of development. So it took a lot longer. You know, your average fleet guy who shows up, you know, it'll take maybe, you know, 90 days, you know, three months to go through the entire level of, of adversary program. For me, having no cat other experience, so I, you know, I didn't really get a formal blue course and then I showed up and they're like okay we're gonna put you through the level two adversary which is you know two ship flight lead and I'm like okay I can do that because I've done that before and then they're like okay we want you to do the adversary tactical the ADTAC program well ADTAC is teaching BFM so I go well wait a minute I don't even know like I don't have the official like I don't know how to do it I can't you can't go I cannot go to the instructor program now not knowing it so uh, at first they're like, well, go watch, they have a DVD. And they're like, go watch the DVD. And I'm like, what DVD? And they've actually got a DVD of a guy from Top Gun talking about BFM. And I'm like, well, why don't we just have an instructor actually sit down and talk to me and we'll do a syllabus. And then for a while we did a level, um, they were going to do a level one, level two blue program when we got a Top Gun guy that showed up, um, which that stalled out because of jet availability. You know, we had some issues with that. And then by the time... You know, it was almost too late by the time that I finally got through the ADTAC program and, and the adversary program. So, I mean, it just took so long because of all the, the, the stuff I was going through outside of flying that it's, it's really hard to say. But, you know, typically, you know, six, month, six months would be, if you've, if you've got no jet availability issues, you can go from level one to, you know, level four and even go to Top Gun. You know, that's a... Um, I don't know what Top Gun. Top Gun actually has its own adversary program, which guys will go to. It's called Level 4I, and those are the guys that can come back to the squadron and teach Level 4 adversaries. I'm talking to quite a few um, of the initial cadre aggressor pilots at the moment from you know, sort of the mid-70s, and one of the things a couple of them have said to me is that you know, because the objective is, is to learn from it rather than to you know, kick somebody's ass, um, and you're doing the same thing day in, day out, you tend to start seeing the same mistakes. You tend to start seeing yeah. the, the same guys do the same things. And that then becomes a little boring. So, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a, a huge privilege to take on the role, you know, to fly that mission, to be the guy that, that sort of teaches the, the, you know, sort of the young bucks and the operational squadrons. But 
Um, you know, is there a sense? And it, and I guess the same question applies to the T thirty eight stuff because even though I won't I won't sort of put you on the spot yeah, and get yeah. you to talk about it, it sounds like you're doing some pretty mind numbingly boring stuff. I mean, is there a sense that you you want some more excitement or that? that it... Yeah, yes and no. I mean, so when you're you're in a gray jet, you know, you mission plan all day, you go fly a two hour sortie, and then you debrief for God knows how long. When you're, you know, as a reservist doing this part-time, it is a perfect job because, you know, it's kick the tires, light the fires, let's go fly, let's have a good time, let's do something tactical that we know it was making a difference because we're making these other pilots better. Um, so it doesn't get old because because you're not doing it that much, you know, because it's, it beats the hell out of flying a 737. So, you know, it's a perfect reserve gig. Now, if you were doing this, as day in and day out, like you talk about as an active duty guy, yeah, I can see that, you know, especially frustrating when you don't necessarily have the weapon systems and the, you know, you're not flying around in an F-22 where, it's, you know, you've got all these toys, you know, you're, you're basically just the one that's kill removing and, and getting out of the fight. But, you know, I, I think it depends on your perspective. You know, for me, I love it, you know, because, because it's not because it's something that I can leave for a little while and then jump right back into um, and, and remember and do and do well and, and get the lessons learned and, and not have to not have to go to the vault as much as I would if I were having, because you know, when you're doing blue, it is a constant, everything's changing, you know, and, and sometimes it's just changing just for the sake of change. They'll just change the name of something and you're like, why did you, you just change? <laughs> well, it's just, you're just calling it something else now. It's the same thing. Yeah, you know, but we can't call it that anymore. It's like. Come on. So, you know, for a part-timer or a reservist, this is a great job. Uh, and I think people that go to, you know, more complex fighters tend to have more issues with that just because of, you know, it's a changing environment. It's changing every day. It's hard to stay current. 